So let's give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, went up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria went up against the whole land, and he went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, son of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and took Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Hebor on the river of Gozon and in the cities of the Medes. Now, this happened because the sons of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the nations whom Yahweh had dispossessed from before the sons of Israel and in the statutes of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And the sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against Yahweh their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and every, under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which Yahweh had taken away into exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking Yahweh to anger. And they served idols concerning which Yahweh had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by the hand of all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by the hand of my slaves, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in Yahweh their God, They also rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he cut with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which Yahweh had commanded them not to do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of Yahweh their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, and practiced divination and omens, and sold themselves to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. So Yahweh was very angry with Israel, and caused them to depart from his presence. None was left except the tribe of Judah alone, 
Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the statutes which Israel had made. So Yahweh rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his presence. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following Yahweh and made them sin a great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until Yahweh caused Israel to depart from his presence as he spoke through all his slaves, the prophets. So Israel went into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pause tonight to thank you for your word, even those portions that record events that are rather sad. We know that these former things were written for our instruction so that we might know you, so that we might be warned, and so that we might have hope. Bless us in these next few moments as we reflect and meditate together upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here is a review of Israel's history. It's around 720 years before Christ. And after only a few hundred years, Israel, the 10 tribes in the north, are so guilty of apostasy that the warning that God had issued to the people of Israel all the way back in Leviticus chapter 26 through Moses is coming true. God had declared that if they persisted in forsaking him and pursuing other gods, that ultimately God would cast them out of the promised land and that they would be scattered over all the earth. So it's a, it's a sobering chapter. And again, it's so crucial because it's a brief, concise summary of Israel's defiance of the Lord and turning from him. And the real burden of these verses and of this chapter is why? The, the answer to the question, why? Why did God allow, if you want to put it that way, or cause Assyria, a wicked, violent, pagan nation, why did God allow them to come in, destroy the capital of Israel in North and Samaria, and uh, commit uh, things which are um, hard to even consider the violence that Assyria committed against their enemies? And why did God allow that and then allow the the 10 tribes to be uh, brought away into exile and and really uh, never to be regathered in a visible, identifiable form? We do find in the days of Zechariah and Haggai, the prophet, when the exiles came back, there were uh, Israelites from other tribes beside Judah and Benjamin. So some of them were back and the various tribes were represented but not in any great numbers. Why would God allow that? So that's the burden of these verses, answering the question, why? How is it that God's chosen people could be subject to such a decimating blow? And in verses 1 to 6, we're, we're instructed as to the nature of, of the blow. You want to call verses 1 through 6 the hammer falls. 
the hammer falls and, and in verses 7 and after we learn why. But first look with me just for a few moments at verses 1 through 6. We're just given the historical account. Uh, in the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea or Hosea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel. Now this is, this is just another king in, in the revolving door of Israelite kings in the north. That was part of God's judgment is he started removing these wicked, evil men, and one would kill another, and then another uh, ungodly king would be appointed over Israel in the north. And uh, in that time period, Assyria was on the rise. What's fascinating is we know about this time period, not only from the Bible, but from a lot of um, extra-biblical, archaeological uh, contemporary evidence. Um, Hosea, for example, the king of Israel, is mentioned in one of the uh, tablets. You can go online and, and look up. That's the, I'm, um, I'm remember, forgetting the name of the specific tablet. I looked at it this past week. You can go to the British Museum and look it up, and there it is in their holdings. It's fascinating. In the annals of Assyria, you have these clay tablets or these different um, uh, uh, records of what the king of Assyria did. They kind of like to keep a record of boasting of what they did. And this one little king of Israel is no, noted by the king of Assyria. So all of these events are attest, well attested by archaeological evidence. One of the most powerful and uh, sobering is a series of uh, wall carvings that depict uh, the Assyrian army besieging uh, Lachish, one of the cities of Israel. And you, you can tell, um, archaeologists can tell basically in these ancient pictorial records that would have been in the palaces of the various kings of Assyria, um, they can tell, you know, what kind of people groups there are. And you, you can see there are, these are Israelites. You can tell by their beards and so forth. And it's a very solemn and sobering and really grotesque scene. There are Israelite soldiers who were defending the city who are uh, literally impaled. The Assyrians were known uh, by their absolute brutality, really unparalleled among other nations until that point. I mean, war is never nice. It's, it's never soft and fuzzy. But the Assyrians, one of the ways that they won was they struck absolute terror into their enemies because of how they treated their enemies. They, uh, I'm looking around uh, for ages of those who are here, but they, they, uh, they skinned alive some of their, I mean, it's just, and all of this is pictured. All of this is pictured in archaeological records. So the Assyrians were on the rise, and they were the power in that, in that whole region at that time. And if you were smart, if you were one of the lesser kingdoms, you lined up and you went to the king of Assyria and said, okay, I get it, you're the guy with the power, how much money do you want? And uh, so for a little while, Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, he paid off Assyria. But then um, what would happen is these smaller little states they would, uh, they would gamble and they would, they would look at the political events and say, okay, Assyria seems to be weakening a little bit. 
maybe I can uh, call upon the king of Egypt if, if, I, if I enlist the help of, in this case, So, king of Egypt, maybe I can skip that very costly payment to the king of Assyria. And uh, that was a perennial challenge for the kings of Israel and Judah to trust in Egypt uh, to deal with the Assyrians or the Babylonians later. So, so that was his ploy. He paid, he paid tribute to the king of Assyria early on. Uh, he was a vassal, but at some point he rebelled. Didn't, uh, the king of Assyria didn't get his money. Um, and he found out that Hosea had been communicating with Egypt. Egypt was um, really the only other power and eventually the king of Assyria went all the way down to Egypt and took care of them as well. They, they, and, and then the kings of Assyria went all the way over to Greece. So Assyria is the dominant power in the world during this period of that part of the world at this period of time. So the king of Assyria didn't think it was too, uh, he didn't take too kindly to the fact that this little king of this little nation, Israel, was defecting, withholding funds, was trying to enlist the help of Egypt. And finally, uh, the king of Assyria said, that's enough, I'm done with this. And the king of Assyria, verse 5, went up against the whole land, that's all of Israel in the north. And he goes up and besieges Samaria. Samaria, remember, is the capital city at this time of Israel in the north. And uh, this this is an awful thing. A siege would have been absolutely awful, absolutely awful. Um, there's no helicopters, there's no drones to, you know, bring in food or, or anything. You are enclosed in a rather small city, fort, with men, women, and children. Maybe you have a water source, hopefully it holds, but whatever food you have at the beginning of the siege, that's all you have. And we just really don't even, can't even fathom the misery that takes place and the kind of things that happen in that kind of siege. So we can just kind of glance over that. But that, that three years of Samaria is, is a wretched time. And the prophets had warned that that would come about, that that's exactly what would take place. And what the king, the king Assyria was able to do, they're so powerful, they can just set up a shop outside Samaria. Uh, they've dominated and destroyed the other Israelite cities. Uh, they can live in the Israelite homes. They can enjoy their orchards, their food. They can eat their cows and their, um, you know, take uh, their animals and, and have a good old time. And all they have to do is wait while the people in the city starve, die of disease, and other things, and uh, it's a miserable scene. And so God did not only permit, but use Assyria in the end to be the hammer of judgment that fell upon Israel in the north. So they besieged the city, verse 5, for three years, and then in the ninth year of King Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, took Israel away into exile to Assyria. That's uh, modern day Iraq and Iran, um, all that area that we've, we've, we've heard of, uh, where a lot of our troops have been over the last 25 years, um, all throughout that area. 
took them away, settled them in different cities there, and their history was over and really will not be renewed as far as identifiable tribes until the coming of Christ. It's a devastating blow. So why? Why would God cause this to come to pass? Why would, why would God let his chosen people be judged so severely? Why would God allow off his chosen people into exile? Well, there are a number of reasons that are recounted in verses 7 through uh, 23, um, one commentator I, I remember this week mentioning maybe there are 21 you know, different lines of reasoning. It's just one reason after another. But for our purposes tonight, um, briefly, I want to try to take the different sections and, and, and if we can in general, summarize why. So first, Why? They forgot God's redemption. They forgot God's redemption. Verse 7, this happened because, and that's the key word there, why? Because the sons of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God. Now, who's, who is this God? He is the God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now that's going back quite a ways. But the fact is that Israel would never have existed if God had not brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was God who brought them into their land. And there are lots of different um, reasons laid out, but on the front end is this reality of lack of gratitude of forgetting from whence they came. And we are liable to the same kind of error, aren't we? How easy it is for us to forget individually, but also together as a church, where we have come from, what God has done for us. How easy it is that while God may not have brought us out of Egypt in slavery, He brought us out of the slave market of sin. And one of our great difficulties as Christ's people is to maintain, I mean maintain, a a palpable sense of remembering what God has done for us so that it does not become just Oh, yeah, everybody knows that. That, that we, we maintain a sense of our former sinfulness and of our condemnation. We, we want to live as Christ's people as free. We want to live as forgiven. We don't want to walk around constantly saying, oh, yes, you know, I'm just a wretch. I'm just a wretch. Well, yeah, but he saved a wretch like you, and you once were a sinner, and now you're a saint. You're a holy one. You're a child of God. You're loved, and you need to rejoice in that. Remember that. But we also, at the same time, need to be very careful to not lose sight of the fact that I was 
dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm not by nature good. My heart is not okay. It's, it's a job and a duty we have to maintain a palpable, that is a, a visceral. In other words, it's, it's not enough to just have it on the page or to just sing about it on a hymn. But when we sing about it with a hymn, there ought to be a sense, you know, and can it be that God should love one such as me? That sense of wonder. If we lose that sense of wonder, we are in trouble and warning signs ought to be going off all over the place. I'm forgetting myself. I'm forgetting where I've come from. We need to maintain. So they forgot. And that, was, that is on the front end of, of what got, that landed them in, in a bad place. They forgot that their God was the one who had redeemed them from utter slavery. Hopelessness. They didn't make themselves. God made them. They didn't give them, they didn't possess the land on their own. God gave it to them. Everything they had was given to them by God. So forgetting God's redemption. And, and that can happen so subtly. Um, but some of the ways we, we, we work against it is we, we sing. You know, we want to be really careful when we sing the songs that we sing about God's grace, about God's forgiveness and so forth. Our heart needs to be engaged. It, 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 if, if what's being said is true about where God has brought us from, we need to use, for example, hymns and songs and allow them to touch our heart. And as we're singing, this is me. This isn't just a hymn I like or this is neat to be singing but to talk to ourselves even as we're singing and say, this is self, this is where you've come from. We sing about God's redemption, but the scary thing is you can be even orthodox. You can be solid in your understanding of salvation. You can be technically right about the reality of sin and depravity and your, your deadness and so forth. You can have all that technically right. And isn't it true that we can just lose a sense of what we have been bought out of, what we have been brought out of. God forbid. And uh, really, what's, that's why rehearsing our, our salvation in song, in prayer, um, we, God does not remember, our, he remembers our sin no more. And, and we shouldn't constantly rehearse our sins of the past, but it is absolutely right for us in the presence of God to, not that he doesn't know, but to confess the truth, which is, oh God, before you loved me and set your love on me, before you sent someone to save me, I was in my sin, I was a dog. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you think of yourselves that way, but that's, that's all the glory and honor of my heart and actually less than a dog. I wasn't nice. I mean, a lot of people thought that Gabe was a nice little boy, and, and I was, and then there were some innocent years, but, but your heart develops and, and you're corrupt. And I, I'm, we, we all have the sense with the Apostle Paul, I, I, am, I am the worst because we know something of our own hearts, and, and it's a job to maintain that. 
not going around and, and uh, parading our sins, but before God maintaining a sense of our own sinfulness and remembering then what it is that God has done and being wary of any tendency in ourselves that that becomes somehow casual. Um, you know, we, we mention him often, but our, our dear brother Charlie Jaworski in the presence of the Lord, I think he's one of the best examples of this. And I, I've used this illustration many times. But you remember when you talk to Charlie, if you, if you, if you talk to him for a long time at all, uh, I don't know how many times Charlie would say to me, just shaking his head, in absolute sincerity, I just can't get over it. I, I just can't, that's what he would say. I can't get over it. I can't get over it. I, I mean, why would God love an old sinner like me? And, and Charlie wasn't moping around and beating himself on, you know. He had the joy of the Lord. He knew he was loved. He was free in Christ. And he maintained a sense of never forgetting the magnitude of what God had done for him. So in verses 7 through 12, if we can summarize it this way, they, they forgot the redemption of God. And when they forgot God's redemption, they forgot themselves and they thought themselves kind of free to borrow from other nations. And in verse 9, they, they started doing things secretly as if God doesn't know. It's, it's the dumbest thing to think that God doesn't see or know. It was absolutely foolish, of course. Um, these sacred pillars and Asherim on verse 10, high hill and every green tree. Some read that and they might think, what's, God, what's God's problem with hill and trees? <laughs> no problem. He, he made hills and he... he made green trees. What the pagan nations did and Israel did was they made these hills and under these big old oak trees and other places, they made them into places of, of wicked and wretched uh, worship of false gods that often involved sexual immorality. Um, these were the convenient and places to worship and uh, they forgot themselves well secondly in verses 13 through 15 not only did they forget God's redemption and uh, think of themselves as free to worship anywhere anything they wanted they dismissed God's word in verses 13 to 15 and this is a common theme of course throughout the whole section but dismissing God's word this is why the hammer fell this is why they were judged. They forgot God's redemption and they dismissed God's word. They were dismissive of it. They, of course, they disobeyed it. Before, but before they even disobeyed it, they wouldn't even hear it. They dismissed it. They were disinterested in it. In verse 13, we learn Yahweh warned Israel and Judah. And interesting there, this passage is primarily about Israel. And of course, it's Israel in the north at this point, that's judged by Assyria. Judah is still hanging on in the south, and uh, they will not. Um, it's around 722 uh, BC when Samaria falls to the Assyrians. It won't be until 586 that Jerusalem falls finally to the Babylonians. So a little over 100 years, but but nonetheless, Judah is on the same trajectory. So there's a warning here. Just because Judah has Jerusalem and the temple and the worship of God doesn't mean that they're exempt. Unfortunately, 
even though they have the line of David as their king, as their kings, they are tracking with Israel in the north. And we've seen that in our study. So a common theme between Israel and Judah is that they dismissed the prophets. God would send prophet after prophet and these seers, they, they had a ministry with the prophets. Of, these are revelatory offices. They are speaking offices. They received a word from God and then they went to the people and warned them to repent. And it was impassioned. Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments, God said, my statutes according to the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by the hands of my slaves, the prophets. Translation, by the way, there, some of you may have servants, the prophets, but, but the word does mean slave. In other words, the prophets were owned by God. They, they really weren't free to do what they wanted. Uh, they were owned by God. But however, verse 14, they did not listen. They did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers. So dismissing God's word. Um, again, uh, the danger not only is in forgetting our redemption, but is, is forgetting the the gift that we have in God's word. And, and you're here tonight because you honor God's word. You, w- you wouldn't come out on a snowy or rainy, cold, early December evening if you didn't have a hunger for God's word. And, and may the Lord bless you for it. But we can become indifferent to God's word. Or again, we can become just kind of orthodox and have a position on God's word But we need to ask ourselves, when's the last time that something in the Bible, whether it be in my personal reading or in teaching or in studying, where I was confronted and I confessed something and I I needed to change something? It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to be, we got to be careful, especially as, you know, we, we expository preaching church, you know, we're an expository preaching church, and we are. We want to exposit and explain the word of God. But, oh, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we better be careful that we're not just an expositing church, but that we are receiving church. Uh, the big difference. In fact, we would be held to a higher standard of accountability if we are those who claim to have a high view of scripture and a high view of teaching and preaching the word of God if, if we don't listen. So I, I know you want to listen, but we have to tell ourselves this, even we who study the word, we, we can become desensitized to the glory and the magnitude of scripture. We can, uh, for those of us who are pastors, it can become a job to study the word and God forbid. So we want to listen. It would be good as a practice for you and for me, but for you, I'm thinking as those who listen, do do you pray for the preacher, maybe Saturday night or Sunday morning? And not not to help me, I'll, I'll be okay. I mean, you know, but what I mean is, do you pray for him in this sense, or do you pray for the preaching in the sense of, oh God, I need to hear from your word and you've ordained and chosen preaching as a particular means of communicating your word to me and open my heart to receive it but please help that man please work in him in other words we want to express to God our our dependency upon him do you on Sunday morning uh, as we approach the, the, the worship service I encourage you 
to come in. And, and I'm so thankful you love visiting with one another. Um, really, I mean, it's one of the marks I love. But I would encourage you that as in these days that you might want to break from your fellowshipping a little bit earlier uh, and, and, and come in and just have a moment where you before the Lord say, Lord, would you please speak to me today through your word? Uh, would you, don't let me just go through this service. Um, these are things, by the way, I, I've had to do in, in my past. So I'm not asking you to do something that, that I haven't done. There, there was a day actually when I didn't preach and uh, I went to hear a preacher year after year after year after year. And, and, uh, and when I was older, I, I, I learned, you know what? I, I'm, I'm so dull. I'm so um, stubborn. I have to ask God, oh God, break through every opposition in my heart. Please, I don't want to just come into a worship service and leave unchanged. So pray, pray for a receptive, teachable spirit that we listen to the word of God, that we're, we're impressionable. We don't want to dismiss God's word like Israel did. And then thirdly and finally tonight in verses 16 through 23, if we're, again, we're, we're just summarizing. You, you can see the details. Um, and they're pretty ugly. I, I actually, before we move on, I just have to notice in verse 15, they followed vanity. That's um, emptiness, breathiness, wind. Um, and they became vanity. And that is a good transition into the third point, robbing God of his worship. Robbing God of his worship. Again, why? Why were they judged? Forgetting God's redemption, dismissing God's word, and robbing God of his worship. In verse 15, we're reminded that we become like what we worship. That's a phrase I want you to have in your mind. We become what we worship. That doesn't mean if we worship God, we become God. But it means that if we worship the one true God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, truly and accurately according to the word, we will become like that which we value and esteem and praise. If we value and esteem and praise empty things, vanity, notice verse 15, we'll become vain. We'll become light. Um, these are days in which um, People are, are searching for significance and, 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 and gravitas and, and weightiness in, in worship or they, they want to have an experience. You, you, don't, you don't have to search for it. You just have to, we just have to come to terms with the reality of who God is as he's revealed in scripture. And we worship that God. We don't have to prop him up. We don't have to make him into something other than he is. We just have to worship the God of the Bible as he's revealed. And we have to love him and esteem him and value him most highly. If we value other things, possessions, lifestyle, personal aspirations, more than God, we will become empty, light, and vain. Which is why, I say it frequently, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but is why all these liberal congregational churches spattered throughout New England are empty. They're empty. 
The only reason they're open is because they have massive funds that were donated over the years that keep the doors open and keep um, paying the, 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 the artists and the poets that they, they put to share thoughts on a Sunday morning devotion to a few people. I'm not trying to be kind, but you, you dismiss the God of the Bible and you chase vanity and you become vanity. You become empty. You become irre- irrelevant. But you worship the one and true God and then you're changed increasingly as we look at him, we become increasingly changed into his likeness, conformed to his likeness. So they robbed God of his worship. They, they forsook the commandments of the Lord. And when they did that, especially remarkable in Israel's history, was right at the beginning there where Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, um, made those two golden calves. And you remember that. And remarkable um, that what a what a form of pragmatism there's another warning too it was very practical by the way we think that was that was so strange he made two golden calves and set one up at Bethel and Dan no 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 Uh, it was wrong but it from a worldly standpoint made total sense total sense I mean in that world who wants to worship a god that you can't see that doesn't sell very well Kind of like having a church that doesn't have lights and smoke and machines and so forth. A few of us were talking about that this afternoon. I mean, I mean, who wants to go to a church where it's just word and, uh, you know, there's not much lights and camera and action and so forth. And that just doesn't sell well today. Well, back then, you know, who wants to worship a God that you can't see? Uh, at least these other gods, Baals and Asherah, you had you had. You had uh, pillars and you had places where you could gather and it was a visible um, uh, experience and, and uh, sensual experience and, and it was uh, very popular, as you can imagine. And so uh, the other thing, of not only could you see the golden calves, but uh, geographically very helpful. Uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was afraid that people in his kingdom in the north would travel down to Jerusalem where God had commanded him that he be worshipped, and he was worried that, you know what, if they go down and worship in Judah, in Jerusalem, I might lose their loyalty. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up two golden calves, one in Bethel, just a little north of Jerusalem, so that they'll stop there and not go to Jerusalem. And I'll put one in Dan, way in the north. So that contrary to Judah's religion in the south, up here in the north, we will be, um, we will be very worship uh, consumer friendly. Uh, uh, if, you, if you're closer to Dan and uh, your preference is to see uh, a golden calf, you can go to Dan. If you want to go to Bethel, you can go to Bethel. We got, we've got options. Um, they corrupted the worship of God. And in so doing, they robbed God of the honor and glory that he was worthy of alone. And uh, that led them into all kinds of not only silliness, but ultimately corruption and evil. And, you know, we're used to it here in New England, but how do you get to the point where you have LGBTQ whatever flags flying in front of churches? Somewhere along the way, 
Someone forgot the gospel of God's redemption through Christ. Someone wanted to dismiss the word and didn't want to hear it. And someone or some persons no longer wanted to be too strict about worshiping God the way that he has commanded he be worshiped in his word. And so in response, of course, God was very angry, verse 18, with Israel. God is not okay with wrong worship. He has commanded how he is to be worshiped. And we've talked about this frequently When we say that, we're not saying that every church needs to have a service order that's exactly like ours. We understand around the world and even within among different churches, there's there's different cultures and and different expressions. But what characterizes them all in every culture, in every age, are certain transferable realities. Devotion to the reading of God's word the teaching and preaching of God's word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the praying, the prayers being lifted up to God with clean hands and sincerity. These are the things that doesn't matter where you are, they are to be found in every church, in every culture, in every place. So God becomes angry. God is angry. He's really not okay with false worship. He, he, he doesn't go along with the line, hey, you can worship me however you want. Does that suit you? That, that's great. I've said to you this many times, and uh, maybe you can share it with others more kindly than I say it, but you hear frequently today people in different churches or just about churches, well, I, I visited a church and you know, their, their worship didn't really suit me. It wasn't really my style. And... Uh, you probably shock a person if in love you say to them, well, that's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. I mean, and the point is? Worship isn't about you or me, right? It's about God. Um, and so the question is, is this a place where I can fulfill my obligation and duty as one of Christ's people, to know God, to worship God as he ought to be. Now, I, you have freedom as a believer. I understand among biblical, there's different biblical churches, and you have freedom in Christ to, to worship, choose to worship at one church or another. But I'm talking about that really crass attitude of, you know, um, it just, you know, that's not really what I'm looking for. And that's what people are looking for today. And we need to be brought up short It's not about us, it's about God and about his honor. And so when Israel went down that route, uh, it made God angry, of course. And uh, especially the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Throughout Israel's history in the north, we saw that referenced again and again. Until, verse 23, Yahweh caused Israel to depart from his presence. This is the scary thing. Verse 22, if we don't depart from our apostasy or false worship, then God will depart from us. And Jesus warns the churches, doesn't he, in Revelation. This isn't just an Old Testament reality. Jesus knocks on the door of churches. Wake up. Get back to your first love. Get rid of the false 
immoralities and false worship that may be there, or else I will remove the lampstand. If we don't depart from our sin, God may depart from us. And again, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not teaching uh, uh, that you should be insecure in, in Christ. The exact opposite. If you are in Christ, as we sang this morning, Oh, the love of my Redeemer, never failing, come what may. That is absolutely true. But it is for us to maintain a heart of humility, to walk in fear and love before the Lord to fear sinning against him and in love to plead with the Lord, oh God, have mercy on me, have mercy on us. Don't let us depart from you. Don't let us dishonor. Do whatever you have to do, God. Break us, hurt us, rebuke us, correct us. Oh God, have mercy. Keep us close to yourself. You can take everything else from us, O oh God. Only don't take your worship and your presence. We maintain that kind of heart and that kind of attitude. God will honor that. He'll be pleased to be with us. So here are sobering lessons as to why the judgment fell upon Israel. And while we have great comfort, of course, of God's mercy and grace with us, that doesn't mean we should be presumptuous. But rather, especially in the book of Hebrews, we are, we are exhorted in Hebrews that we are, in chapter 12, verse 25, and I'll close with this, even in the New Covenant, speaking to churches of believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and then the author ultimately of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Therefore, verse 28, and with this I close. Since, brothers and sisters, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Not forget his redemption. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable service or worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. So, Lord, we do pray uh, earnestly that you would um, continue to have mercy upon us, We want to walk in the joy of our salvation. We want to live in the joy of our salvation. We want to live as your sons and daughters, and we we intend to. And with that, we see the pattern in your word that we dare not forget where we've come from. We dare not forget all that you've done for us. We dare not dismiss your word, and we dare not rob you of your worship. So please, God, help us in these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.